Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of GodPod. It's uh, always good to be together to talk about theology, life and just about everything as we talk about on GodPod. And today we have um, uh, myself, Graham Tomlin, as the host for today. We also have Jane Williams with us. Yes, I'm trying to be me and Mike, but I won't succeed, I'm afraid. Yeah, so we don't have Mike today, I'm afraid. So all you Michael Lloyd fans out there, you're probably switching off at this very moment, but I urge you not to. Because even though you might love Mike Lloyd, and I know he has a huge fan base out there in the world, um, we like to hope that Jane and I have a tiny smidgen of wisdom between us, um, but also even more in our guest this morning, much more in our guest this morning. I say this morning because we are recording it in the morning. You may be listening to it in the afternoon or the evening or wherever you are. But um, our guest today is uh, an old friend who's been on um, GodPod before, who is um, Luke Bretherton. Um Luke, it's great to have you with us. Really a joy, joy and honor, always, always to gather with you, this com- true communion of saints. Exactly right. <laughs> and Luke, you've, um, yeah, you've been a uh, professor of theology in, um, what's your full title at Duke? No, uh, I've yeah, one of these ridiculously convoluted titles under Robert E. Cushman, Distinguished Professor of Moral and Political Theology. There you go. Takes a whole line on my, you know, <laughs> page. Really distinguished and properly so as, as well. So, so Luke, you're, you're um, you've been at Duke in uh, North Carolina in the USA for um, the last number of years, but you recently um, uh, moved to a, a kind of um, well, a kind of hi- hybrid position, I think, yeah. in the US and the UK. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'm teaching teaching Simulitis, so it's been a joy of teaching uh, this uh, <laughs> this this just just this autumn uh, for the American listeners in the fall. Uh, and I have to self-translate between two uh, two two languages. Um, and uh, and then I'm still teaching at Duke, so I teach in. I'm going back to Duke uh, in North Carolina for um, the spring semester. So that runs from January to May. So I'm kind of living between partly familial things and vocational things, and I'm trying to build some transatlantic connections as as well. Uh, and so we can, perhaps we can talk talk a little bit more about that later. But um, yeah, so that's my new new position. But it's very very delightful to be back, and it's been a joy teaching at Simulitis. It must be um, fascinating too for somebody who's uh, interested in political theology. These are two very different worlds, aren't they? North America and Great Britain. Still, they are. I mean, I think there's a there's an enormous amount of part, part of the reason I went was uh, to kind of go upstream and seeing a lot of things come over, both Christian wise, political wise, economic wise, from the states, and, and wanted to kind of have an understanding of what the kind of origins history context because i think it's hard to get a feel for that outside of living there um so i think there is a lot of connections and obviously we've been you know since the 15th century kind of connected as a shared world in the kind of i would i would I, my imagination now is shaped by thinking in terms of the atlantic world i think we tend to think of either europe over here or america's over there and i say the americas because it's you know north and south america is, is a kind of I think it's better to think about them as a connected whole. Um, 
And but I, I think if you put the put one's kind of center of gravity in the middle of, middle of the Atlantic, all of the worlds that we're part of, think about the emergence of the nation state, the, our banking systems, chattel slavery, you know, all the all the kind of both the hugely huge issues we're trying to think through and the kind of fraught politics of memory through to the actual mechanics of the institutions we live amongst they will emerge in that atlantic world from from broadly the 15th century onwards so i think that's i think it's a helpful way to think about these as inherently interconnected at the same time there are very distinctive features in each part of that world in america particularly i was living in the south has its own very troubled history, obviously, um, and uh, but but yeah, there's a very. <laughs> I mean, even from I, I kind of had to learn the different police forces. There seems to be millions of different police. There's the county police, the town police, the state police, and then the federal. And you're always slightly worried, like who's 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 gonna can tell where my mind goes when you're driving along the highway and you're looking at your speedometer and it's slightly over what it should be who you're going to be nabbed by is always a kind of you're never quite sure so um, but anyway, that's just one indicator I'm very glad you're reclaiming your your heritage being back in london and um your twitter handle is west london man and remained all the way through your time in the, in the states didn't it so i did i was never quite ready to let go of it so I'm now feeling yeah. truly i'm back in act and you know wandering along hammersmith bridge i'm, I'm truly west london man again but in that interesting position of being kind of sort of positioned somewhere in the Atlantic between um, the Americas and Europe is a fascinating place to be. And you, you started a, a new podcast recently? Yeah, so I, I do a podcast called Listen, Organize, Act, available on all platforms. And it, and it was really born out. I do, I've done a lot of work in the past with community organizers, which again is a kind of practice. It's, it's in Germany, France, Britain, Citizens UK, London Citizens, people might have come across um and uh but it, it again begins in the states and then kind of travels across the atlantic and it's really a form of grassroots democratic politics when we say politics we tend to think of you know labor conservative or democrats republicans but actually a lot of politics is is very local uh, and and kind of how do we form a common life with others not like us really without because it's when i meet someone i disagree with dislike have issues with um there's really only four things to do. I can kill them. I can create a system to coerce them and make them do what I want to do without having to talk to them or ask them. I can make life so difficult that I cause them to flee, or I can do politics. I can negotiate some kind of common life amidst disagreement, asymmetries of power without killing, coercing, or causing to flee. And and really, community organizing is a mode of doing a more local form of politics. I often grew out in very... Uh, diverse urban contexts um, and during COVID there were, I was in kind of regular conversation with community organizers all around the states and, and they were kind of wrestling with how to do training they did a lot of kind of training of local leaders and how to engage in politics in particularly in the highly polarized times that we live in um, and they were struggling with that obviously because they couldn't meet I said well you should do a podcast you know because you tell great stories and you do these great kind of popular education adult education stuff and the community organizers are funny lot. They they tend to be rather skeptical of social media. I I think I used to think they were wrong. I'm now I think they're probably right. Um, and uh, so I said, well, you know, podcast. And they said that sounds really good. You do it. So I ended up having to do it. Um, but it's been so. The first season is really a kind of how to. But I talk to organizers and leaders all around the state who engage in really fascinating and wonderful um, forms of 
grassroots democratic politics. And they're really stories that cut against the trend. It's, you know, these are across very different kinds of communities forming forms of common life to address issues of shared concern, whether it's issues of wage or during the pandemic, they did some brilliant things around getting people like undocumented people, how do they get access to, to, to vaccines or PPE? And the churches were very involved. So the churches would provide a kind of identity card that would be recognized by the health authority. Very practical, very needed, addressing a real need. How did they do that? What's the kind of politics through which you do that? So it's, the, it's a resource for churches to engage in that more local level, common life building. And then the second season is really thinking about how do, how do we think about democracy? Like what and what's the relationship between Christianity and democracy and how have people understood democracy? Again, outside of a party politics, that more very, how do people have some agency and say in shaping their living and working conditions? Like that's, you know, that's really the heart of democracy. And and how do we take people seriously as as having an intrinsic dignity? I mean, in Christian terms, we might think about this in, in terms of each person bearing the image of God. But really, I would say that you know, Christians don't need democracy to be Christian, but democracy does in some ways enshrine certain kinds of Christian commitments. And it's recovering something of a vision for that, which which I think we've lost today. Drawing back from that and thinking about some of the, the sort of theological and anthropological kind of uh, convictions that um, have led you to that or have emerged from that. And I was interested in some of the thoughts you've been expressing recently around the idea of a of a kind of Christian humanism. Because yeah. um, I guess that's related to some of the themes you've been thinking of, uh, you've been speaking about already. And I guess for many listeners, um, humanism feels like a, you know, that's, that's you know, the British Humanist Society is basically atheist. It's a kind of anti-religious kind of movement. But I think you, you're trying to reclaim an older tradition of of, of Christian humanism, of a, of a kind of understanding of the human, which is distinctly Christian, and how that offers a different way of thinking to some of the other categories of thinking about human life today. Do you want to say a little bit about Yeah, to that, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I mean, it's basically, I, I think you can, one way to think about it is, is we are, it's very, two key claims. If, if we begin with Jesus Christ, I think there are many traditions of humanism. I think Judaism has kind of rich tradition. We think of a figure like Maimonides or, or, or in Islam, Ibn Rishta, we think, you know, and, and people like in the, in the Latin versions, Averroes and others. So there, I think there are very many different traditions of humanism, because um, it humanism just is asking is basically asking the question of of what is the value of each human, and then this question of if we if we're going to value the human, does how does any social, political, economic project, does it enhance what it means to be human, or does it diminish our humanity? And I think there are different ways into asking that, and the kind of secular humanist word. word even though I, it was a recent lecture called it a Christian heresy, I tend to do think secular humanism is a Christian heresy. Um, but I, but in the Christian tradition, I think we can that that central claim that Jesus Christ is fully human and fully divine, and, and we we focus a lot of energy on thinking about Jesus as fully divine, but we tend to kind of not really dwell on the fully human bit. But that's that's also a central claim, and you can. I think Christian humanism, one way to under, into understanding it is is really central. If you think about in the passage in John 19, and we have this, it's hugely influential in in so much of Christian art and a, a lot of Christian theology. Pilate brings out Jesus and presents him before the crowd. 
and uh, in the in the in the Vulgate Latin, "ecce homo," but in in the Greek, it's yeah. you know, "anthropos." Here is the human, and and it, we can read that as almost Pilate preaching against himself. If you want to know what the true human, the true picture of the human, contemplate, I'm presenting you the person to contemplate, Jesus Christ. Yes, the called Melan is that he is a. He's just about to be crucified, isn't he? Well, so that's the point. So then who is this person we're to contemplate? It's one who is beaten and uh, a prisoner and about to be judicially executed. So there's this, that, and that's really the twofold claim. Here's the true human. Where do we encounter the picture of true humanity? It's, you know, we can think of Matthew 25, when you feed the hungry, when you clothe the naked, when you visit the prisoner, when... And so in this Christological humanism of like, this Christ-centered humanism, Christ is the true picture. We, we both encounter Christ when we're visiting prisoners, clothing the naked, feeding the hungry, um, looking after the elderly. Uh, and we discover our humanity. And I think that's really the driver of a Christian humanism. And so how do we, where, where do we both discover Christ and where do we discover what it really means to be human? And we can think about something like the parable of the Good Samaritan as a, as a picture of this. As as readers, we both we both understand something of who who Christ is in the figure of the Samaritan, and we recover something of what it means to be human in this act of loving care for the vulnerable. Um, and so I think this is a this is a very key in a in the kind of for all we've got at the moment about how do we do Christian witness and we've got Christian nationalism on one side and we've got, you know, the thing we've got to kind of baptize every progressive shibboleth on another side and no, no, we need to have a kind of technocratic, rational framework and ban religion from the public sphere on the other side. I think the Christian humanist tradition points us to a very ancient and rich understanding that that refuses all of those other options and says actually how you know in amongst all the arguments about this and the other how are we going to care for old people how are we going to care for kids what does it mean you know to really uh, respect the dignity of each other and take each other seriously as as image bearers of god um, um so luke is this primarily preaching to Christians. Uh, I mean, Gandhi is famously quoted as having said, when, when he was asked what he thought of Christian civilization, he thought, he, he replied that it would be a good idea. Yeah. Um, so the fact that these traditions are ancient and deeply embedded mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in Christianity doesn't mean Christians have, uh, Absolutely. Christians have more often identified with Pilate or behaved yeah, yeah. like Pilate than yeah. like Jesus have. No, absolutely. And I think that's, I think it's always, you know, judgment comes upon the people of God first. So I think it's a word to the people of God to be the people of God. Mm -hmm. And, but in that place, then we can, we find, you know, so a good example, um, I, I've often used of, of something like hospice care. So Dame Cicely Saunders was, uh, you know, very strong Catholic, saw the direction of modern medicine, saw that the, the very attempt to keep people alive was going to lead to dehumanizing practices that were, were going to actually undermine people's humanity. But her 
her, her response was not to start a campaign to kind of be against euthanasia. Her, start, her response was to create hospice care. What constitutes a form of care that takes seriously in people's suffering, in their dying, that they are image bearers of God? And, and invents a whole new form of medicine, palliative care, uh, revives an institution of care that hallows the dignity and worth of intrinsic worth, even at, at this point of greatest vulnerability of suffering in their dying. Um, and, I, and, and in that, that's open to all sorts of people. Doesn't matter whether you're a Hindu, Sikh, or secularist, you can enjoy the good of hospice care as a shared good. And I think it speaks to a broader vision. I think a Christian humanist visions always open out hospitable spaces of encounter that many can take part in. They, they connect us to all sorts of weird and wonderful people in ways that build a common life together rather than we've got to defend Christianity against all, you know, encircle the wagons, a kind of defensive enclave, worried, anxious, you know, the self-martyrology of the church as a victim by a, a kind of wicked, bad secular culture. Or we just have to anxiously baptize everything that's happening and because we've got to be relevant, you know, like that, none of those are deeply. It's, it's this sense of how do we take seriously these ancient traditions as ways that connect us in profound, um, uh, profound ways, meaningful ways, ways that genuinely connect to the human and others in midst our fragility and, and frailty of what it actually means to be human. Because, you know, the realities of whether it's friendship, looking after my mum is just, my wife's just taken her to the hospital today, you know, that, that kind of, she's going to have some tests. It's like, the, you know, the, the frailties of life that we navigate, that, these are universals, which I think a Christian humanist tradition speaks to. It's profoundly Christian and profoundly human. And, that, and at that point, we can connect to others. And so one of the things that really struck me about when you were describing the interaction between Pilate and Jesus is, is teaching us to see the human. Because mm. um, our temptation, I suppose, always is to, is to see people like ourselves as, as the, you know, what it really means to be human. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, again, part of the understanding of church has always been a church isn't for people just like me. That's a club. A church is something completely different. Yeah. Um, so, um, I mean, one of the things that comes out of this Christian humanism is how is learning how to see the, the human. Is that? Yeah, absolutely. And it's it recognized. I mean, one of the dangers is we, and, and I think the modern world's been very bad at this. We've tended to define what it means to be human in terms of, you know, it's the rational creature or well, who defines whose rationality. Um, even when we get to, it's, it's you know, we've got to have some justice framework. Well, you know, famous question from the philosopher Alistair McIntyre, you know, who's justice? So we, we create these categories to determine who is human, who's deserving of care, who gets to be included, who, who should be grieved. And then we, and, and people who don't fit those categories or classifications are judged as unhuman. And so we enslave them. We kind of turn them into commodities. We create completely extractive industries which destroy their landscapes because they don't really matter they're not using it properly they don't have any form of life that's worth paying attention to we can just make use of it for our own needs um and i think at the heart and again going back to the good samaritan parable 
at the heart of the Christian humanist tradition is this sense that the if if Christ defines who is the other to be cared for, to be grieved, to be taken seriously as a fully human subject, deserving of of respect and dignity, then where do we see that? Where do we see Christ? Where do we encounter Christ? Well, it's with the prisoner. It's with the the leper. It's with all these people we judge as outside of, who don't look like us, who don't. And so there's this constant drive to encounter others not like us as the way we discover our humanity, rather than I've defined what it means to be human and then apply that and people don't fit the grid. It's, oh no, I can only discover my humanity through relating to people not like me. And I think that's a profound difference of orientation. We sort of pause there for a moment because I think they, they tell us that we have to pause halfway through a recording and apparently okay. same word. I never, I didn't know sure how this thing works, but um, okay. apparently it helps the quality of the audio. So, okay. So I think they right. fixed that. I think they fixed that, didn't they, Graham? Did they? Okay, maybe we don't need to do that. Okay. Whatever Dan says. <laughs> um, I think it's fixed. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we can carry on. We can carry on. In which case, we'll just edit out this little bit and then carry okay. on. Yeah, thank, thanks, Matt, who will be editing this out. So, yeah, that's really interesting, Luke. And I suppose one of the things that strikes me on that is it, um, again, it gives a very different understanding of what, how you discover your humanity, because I suppose a lot of the, the um, trajectory of modern thinking on how you find yourself, your whole, your whole, your true humanity is by a kind of inward process of self-discovery. Um, that I can find out who I really am by interrogating my own desires, feelings, identities, um, you know, and we, we, we latch on to particular identities within culture. Whereas I guess this is saying that I, I can really only find my true humanity, my true identity, not, not by being centered a bit in, within myself, but by being centered, like, not intrinsically, but extrinsically yeah, yeah. in relationship to others and in relationship to God. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think so. It's, I think it's very so. It, so two two things. I mean, I think core to a Christian anthropology is, you know, we're not created to be alone. Um, with there is no, I cannot survive, let alone thrive without others. And so there's always got to be some process of building a common life with others who are not like me. And so the kind of modern fantasy that we're kind of individual really rights-bearing subjects who contract with others. This is Thomas Hobbes' idea in Le Leviathan. The basis of society is individuals somehow coming together to contract together is a, is actually magical thinking. Uh, we're not individuals um, first. We're always social beings. Uh, this is kind of Aristotle's the political animal idea. But I think it's there. It's central to, if we put it in terms of we're covenantal creatures. We cannot exist outside of shared forms of life. Um, and we certainly, you know, as of all, we can't survive, let alone thrive. So if we're going to thrive, we have to have some kind of just and generous form of common life um, if, if we're going to go on. So I think so that's, that's one thing to say. Um, I think the other, the other thing then is it's not either, it's neither a case of I, I possess the truth about myself. That's, you know, whether it's sin or finitude or all these ideas, I am not the best judge of my own, who I am and what I am. I need others 
who are not like me to give me some account of myself because I'm a pretty bad judge of it. But neither is it a case that somehow others wholly possess the truth of it. So just a very basic example. If I if I claim to possess the truth about my marriage, I think my wife would have words, you know, like <laughs> or my family. I think my kids would have words. It exists between us. Um, now they don't they can't claim to define it either. The truth there is a truth to know. There's a truth it's, it's a struggle to get to the truth. But the truth exists between us and therefore it's inherently a kind of dialogic conversational process that we discover the truth of who we are through relationship with others. And I, that involves both the discovery of who I am as Luke Bredesen, but then we also discover together who you are as Graham Tomlin and you are as Jane Williams. And then there's the truth of our relationship together. And all of those are particular truths of who we are only exists in the relationship of the quality and character of our life together and how that's held between us. And therefore, that puts, puts front and center, not choice or will or rationality as defining the human, but the quality and character of our relationships with each other. Turns out love, faith, hope, the virtues, this is what matters for defining the truth of the human because there is no discovery of our shared humanity and the truth of it outside of the quality and character of our relationships with each other. Would you go on, because I guess that, that speaks into the social, the democratic, the political, mm -hmm. the way in which we uh, arrange our relationships with each other. Yeah. Um, switching to the sort of theological for a moment. Yeah. Um, to what extent is it also true within this framework of thinking that we don't discover our, our true humanity out of relationship with God? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So that so then so that that move from the kind of political to the theological. So I think yeah. So on on the political side, you know, there's obviously then it it puts front and center. Then how are we relating? And therefore, if I'm killing you, causing you to flee, um, it you know persecuting you, whatever, I'm not able to hear you. I'm not in conversation with you. I'm not able to be in a process where we can discover together. So it's not only and this is the inside of people like Martin Luther King Jr. in beloved community and and many others. It's not simply that I'm, you know, defacing the others who I'm persecuting or killing's humanity. I'm also defacing my own. I become less human in that act. But I think that's that is rooted in this sense of how do we discover who we are as humans only in relationship to God. And so the full sense of what it means to be a creature, and this kind of human creature, is only when we encounter the divine. But I think to I would slightly push back on the kind of let's turn to the theological over the political. I don't think we should, I think they're always co-constructed because, and this goes back to the kind of Good Samaritan point, the Matthew 25 point, the kind of John 19, if I can only encounter God through Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, well, where do I really encounter Christ? Well, it's pretty clear on that. It's looking after the prisoner, it's looking after the leper, it's looking after the dementia patient who needs care. That's where I'm that's where Christ promises to show up. Um now it yes in bread and wine and, and preached word, but there's a certain sacrament of presence of of the stranger, of the oppressed, of the one in need of care who can't care for themselves, that I think is spoken of in the New Testament. 
and that sense of that. So if I'm if I can only really encounter Christ at that point, and therefore it discover who I am in relation to God, I'm both discovering my humanity and discovering God in the same gesture. And I mean, this is it, it's so interesting and important to hear this. One, and it seems to me to have a a big dimension and a small dimension. So local politics and big politics, um, again, not separated in in that that political theological hole that you're talking about. Because I suppose one of the things that a lot of us rediscovered during COVID was local. Mm. Was actually paying attention to where we are situated. Yeah. Um, and um, uh, and I, I suppose one of the possible problems of that is that it it might grow a sense of of only being in community with the people immediately around yeah. us, people yeah. more like us. So how you get? I mean, how do you get that kind of balance of the big and the small politics? Yeah, and I, yeah. So I think this is why I think there's two a couple of things to say on that. I mean, I think one is we do need to recover the local, and that was. A, that was a that was one of the I think important elements of COVID, which which was to you know we we need to treasure in a sense in a difficult time. Um, I think part of the problem is we tend to read our policy. I see this in America very very kind of pointedly. People read their local situation through a national grid, and therefore tend to think they have nothing in common with people over and against the actual reality of their lives. You know, I live in a cul-de-sac in, in North Carolina. People around me have very different political positions to me, different views, different religions. They offer to go and pick my kids up from soccer on a, when I had to go and do this, you know, like when the hur- we have hurricanes, weather will kill you in America in a way in which you can't experience. I'm rather ha- happy to be out of in the UK. <laughs> but, you know, when the freezing rain comes through, the hurricane comes through and the electricity gets knocked out, we had a gas cooker, and so we'd make the soup, you know, so you, you just muddle along, and that's actually how most human life operates. But then we hear these national scripts which say you have nothing in common, you're locked in kind of ethnic or racial silos, you you can't kind of be in relationship with the other. So we then use those scripts, which, by the way, people are making billions of dollars off ensuring we conform to, to read our actual local lives. And I think the church has a really important counterwitness to say, begin locally and understand the reality of your life through the actual mechanics of how you're living your life. Don't read it through this highly abstracted script. So that's that's one thing I think is a very profound input because the church exists locally, particularly in a parish structure. It's really important. But it also, I think, you know, the reality is like take any any congregation I have ever been part of. It's full of insanely quirky, difficult people who drive you <laughs> crazy and un- that's just describing yourself, isn't it? <laughs> that is I'm just describing me. Unbelievably <laughs> angular and frustrating on the rainy Thursday night in the BCC, you know. So like it's not like we don't encounter it's a training ground for the kinds of virtues of patience, hope, kindness that we need and and the judge always had this inside august it's there in augustine you begin with your immediate circle of care now there's a danger of a parochialism and a self-enclosure but but that's the the move to a communion of saints who exists in all times and places and a church as in the model of pentecost which has to turn to those 
outside, these weird Scythians and Parthians and they're all showing up in Jerusalem. The, the kind of Jerusalem-dwelling Jews who thought they were the bee's knees had to turn to the people who were on the margins to understand this new word of God. But the people on the margins had to turn to people at the center. Peter gets up and interprets this event through the Hebrew scriptures as he's received them. You have to turn to the center to understand what's going on. So there's this bringing together. These speakers of strange tongues are brought together. So you, it's both beginning locally but that's not the be-all and end-all. The church, as a community of saints, drives us beyond that. But we don't begin at the abstract uh, and then move local, which is what a kind of certain kind of liberal cosmopolitan frame wants to do. You know, uh, there's a great line from... Uh, sorry, you want to... Uh, I just finished, uh, just finished on this. So just there's a great line from... Um, I would stop. I can really say, I, I care nothing for what it means to be a German or a Frenchman. And I care only for the brotherhood of humanity. Well, I'm like... Where's this brotherhood of humanity? We only understand it locally, and then we move out from there. But but equally, we always have to oppose forms of nationalism and kind of chauvinistic kind of forms of of kind of that say we're the only ones who are human. No one else is human, and so that's the tension. I think that's where Christian humanism cuts between a, a kind of highly abstracted cosmopolitanism, which devalues the local, devalues local forms of customary life and traditions, and a kind of ethnic chauvinism and, and nationalism, which says no one else matters but us. And I think that's that the, the church is a communion of saints, which we learn how to live in in a local congregation, should be our pattern of life for that. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been a really interesting discussion. I think we've we realize how American you've come that you call it soccer rather than football. I've yet to make that. Yeah, that's true. Acclimate rather than acclimatize. You'll, you'll learn the language again, don't worry. <laughs> Luke, it's been fantastic talking with you and uh, really interesting to hear your thoughts on Christian humanism on um podcast that you're you're starting up. And um, I'm sure we'll have you on Godpod again before too long. Oh, but uh, it's been great to have you today. So um Thank you so much to Luke Brotherson. Thank you also to Jane as well. Goodbye. Goodbye. Really enjoyed to be with you. Take care. Goodbye, everyone, and see you next time. That was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.